Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. In the last episode, we looked at Jesus calling a man named Matthew, whose chosen profession as a tax collector made him a despised man in his community. And yet, Jesus chose him and offered the same call to him as all the other disciples, the call to follow him. We read that Matthew accepts that call, and next thing we know, he's putting on a banquet for Jesus in response. This banquet then basically gets ambushed by another group of people, Pharisees coming to gatecrash a gathering where Jesus is. This backfires on them big time because Jesus is able to show them they were lacking in a major virtue and their religious expression was failing as a result. They were missing the trait of mercy. But this conversation isn't over just yet. And Jesus has a few more things to show these guys before the banquet is over. Let me read this time from Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. They said, that is the Pharisees, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. If they do, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And none of you, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for you say the old is better. Fasting was a very much accepted form of religious devotion in ancient Hebrew culture. It was prescribed as part of their festivals in some settings, such as the Jewish Day of Atonement. In other places, it was spoken of in the context of a repentant people casting off outer pleasures in order to get right with God. The Pharisees got pretty zealous with it and fasted every Monday and Thursday, and they encouraged those they taught to do the same. In the first century, fasting had come to symbolize a sense of personal dissatisfaction with oneself and it served as a constant reminder of personal guilt and the seeking of divine forgiveness. In good Hebrew form, even John the Baptist, who was the last expression of the Old Covenant, taught his followers to observe the practice of fasting as a key element of their devotion and display of repentance. But Jesus did not do this. On any given Monday, while the deeply religious were looking sad and mopey in the hope that God would honor their outward show of repentance, Jesus and his disciples would be at somebody's place eating and enjoying life. There was joy and a different spirit in those following Jesus, and this was beginning to show, enough for someone to actually ask Jesus about it. The question at hand goes a little like this, why do our followers fast, but yours don't? In other words, why is there an apparent absence of solemnness and dignity in your followers? Why are they continually joyful and celebratory? 
Where's the respect? Where's the penance? Where's the properness of their devotional expression? Where's the reverence? This was a challenge not so much to the practice of the disciples, but the teaching and the example of the rabbi. What are you instilling into your disciples, Jesus, that causes them to act in such an improper way? Why do you, Jesus, permit them to carry themselves that way when the rest of us, and even the Old Testament to a degree, instructs otherwise? Well, Jesus came to show us a new way going forward, and his answers give some cool insight about how this will play out. In the response of Jesus here, we see some key ideas carefully crafted to show us the nature of the devotion that he now deems appropriate for those who follow him. First, we see there is a new type of devotional relationship. Jesus identifies himself using the metaphor of a bridegroom. And given the context and timing of this conversation, some key Old Testament links would be coming to mind as he spoke to the Pharisees here. Jesus has already quoted the prophet Hosea in this conversation with the Pharisees. That's where the phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, comes from. These religious leaders would have their mental thumb in those pages as the conversation continues. The overarching story of Hosea is actually quite, well, unique. The first three chapters tell the story of the prophet and the Lord's instructions to him to go and marry a prostitute. Sadly, even though they have children and appear happy, she leaves and goes back to her trade. Surprisingly, the Lord tells Hosea to go and get her again, and this time, if necessary, buy her back. This then becomes an allegorical tale of a faithful and loving bridegroom despite the adultery of the bride. And intertwined with this story, we see a prophetic idea of a faithful God to Israel despite their spiritually adulterous ways. God, as the bridegroom in this tale, is willing to buy his people back. So with the tale of Hosea in their minds, Jesus then tells the Pharisees this, I am the bridegroom. And while the bridegroom is present, there is every reason to be in celebration mode. Hebrew weddings went on for seven extravagant days, a small Galilean village would slow to a standstill every time a wedding happened. There was no cause for grief, mourning, dissatisfaction, or rejection at a wedding. When Jesus was around and you dwelt at close quarters with him, you knew exactly how much he forgave you and how much he loved you. You knew precisely where you stood with him. And this leads to certainty and celebration. Jesus wasn't calling his followers to solemnness and constant reminders of their shortcomings. He was calling followers who would celebrate his presence as they would the arrival of a bridegroom and live out this vertical position of holy freedom and forgiveness in a horizontally effective manner. If we want to know what God's heart for a fast is, then Isaiah chapter 58 offers what it is supposed to be. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't what the Pharisees were doing every Monday and Thursday. But Jesus also did make a key prophetic statement. In the midst of all this wedding talk, Jesus speaks of the bridegroom being taken away and going by the way it is written in the original language, the implication is that he will be taken by force. Then the disciples would mourn, but it would be merely for a season and their sorrow would soon be turned to joy again. This is yet another pointer to Jesus' death and resurrection. Next, this new relationship leads to a new outward expression. 
We see this in the next metaphor. Jesus uses that of a garment. In particular, he is talking about placing a new patch on an old garment and how futile that would in fact be. If you take your favorite piece of clothing and decide to repair it with a brand new patch, you may run into problems. First, the threadbare and faded garment would not match the freshly dyed fabric of the new patch. It would be clear that one of these fabrics is not like the other. But the bigger issue is that the moment you washed that item and the patch shrunk or moved, it would separate from the old tear and make the problem even bigger. Here's where Jesus was going with this idea. The Old Testament law, in the way it was practiced, actually had a perfect, divine, appointed lifespan. It was designed to carry the people of God until the arrival of the Messiah, where it would be completely fulfilled at the cross. It would not be nullified by any means, but all would be made clear and complete because of the work of Christ. And from there, the Old Testament was intended to be read by Christians through the lens of what Jesus did. At the time of Jesus' arrival, the law had become threadbare and was showing signs of tearing. It had been misused and muddied over the generations since Moses. And while the letter of the law had had a recent resurgence with the Pharisees driving this along, the spirit of the law had well and truly been lost. And Jesus wasn't coming to merely patch it up. He was coming with a whole new garment. The sacrifices and the drawn-out procedures of devotion and faith, the fasts, the washing ceremonies, the distinction of clean and unclean, even the earthly symbols of the faith such as the temple, these would be done away with. And a new garment of grace, joy, truth, and mercy. A garment that Isaiah 61 verse 10 calls a robe of righteousness. This will be given through Jesus to a new generation of followers. And finally, this new devotional relationship required the right container, a right heart. We see this as Jesus presents the parable of a new wineskin. Wine was used as an analogy for joy and for life in the Bible often. That's the idea in play when Jesus turned water into wine in John's Gospel. In that place, the lifeless, watered-down system of ceremony was metaphorically replaced with a wine of life. And that miracle occurred at a wedding. Jesus, the promised bridegroom, revealed his glory first by restoring joy at a wedding. The Christian communion setting uses wine to represent the blood or the life force of Christ himself. So Jesus is teaching a parable here with two key elements, a substance synonymous with life and joy and a container to adequately hold it, the wineskin of our hearts. The Hebrews were very good winemakers. They knew their craft well, and Jesus spoke into that major agricultural stream quite a lot in his parables. A wineskin was the actual skin of an animal, and the bigger the animal, the greater the literage of the skin. One of the more common skins used for practicality was that of goats. They would carefully stitch these together and line them with honey or pitch to make them watertight. When you had an older and more settled wine, you kept that in older skins, but new wine or recently pressed product needed a new skin with some flexibility in it. During fermentation, the sugar of the grapes ate into the yeast that the fermentation generated, and the result was a lot of carbon dioxide gas, which expanded the container that contained the wine. An older skin would be too inflexible and would rupture, and the award-winning product inside 
would be lost. Using this parable, Jesus is saying the Pharisees had become inflexible and the old wine of the Mosaic law seemed a much more palatable drop to them. But the people at Matthew's table had had about enough of the burden of the Pharisees. They were ready to bring the wineskins of their hearts to the celebration and they were ready to be filled with this new wine that Jesus spoke of. And the amazing thing about new wine is that it has an unsettling nature. In the natural, a skin would need to be vented to stop it bursting. And this would be the same in what Jesus brings. Even the most robust heart would need to vent in a good way. The effects of this new wine, the life and the joy of the era of grace, would by necessity be released from its new container. And this would have an effect everywhere. Just look at what we saw a few episodes back. Jesus healed a bunch of people and then told them to say nothing about it. How well did that go? New wine in fresh hearts will by its very nature vent out. And if it doesn't, we might even burst. So these are three key elements in this passage. We have a new relationship where the era of the Mosaic law was completed and the new era of grace had begun. We have a new outward expression, which is not burdensome, but instead celebratory. It's not confined to the rules and regulations of a law, but expressed in true freedom and joy. And finally, we have a new inward experience, where our heart is supernaturally transformed to contain the joy, the grace, and the life that Jesus brings. So let me ask you some devotional questions right now. First, what does your Monday behavior and demeanor tell us about what you believe? On Mondays, the Pharisees fasted and looked terrible. On Mondays, the disciples of Jesus celebrated. How do we see our relationship with him? Are we carrying ourselves in a constant state of mourning and repentance, or are we carrying ourselves in forgiven confidence and grace-fueled celebration? Next, what garment are you wearing? Is it rules or righteousness? The garment that the Pharisees made the people wear was heavy because it was full of the rules and the regulations of the old covenant plus some of their own. The law was a constant reminder of the fallibility of man in the sight of a holy God, but it also pointed to the one that would make it all complete and fully atone for man's failure. Many Christians still live this old covenant life, bound in legalism, gauging their faith by the works they do and the rules they keep. We can't in and of ourselves attain that level of righteousness, so stop trying. Jesus offers righteousness and credits that to us through our faith in Jesus. In order to accomplish this, Jesus didn't simply tack on the cross to the existing old ways. There was no patch-up job here. Instead, a new way, a new garment was to be introduced, and we call that the new covenant. This garment would be supernaturally provided and its qualities would be supernaturally credited or infused into our being. We live in the confidence that we are not clothed in the rules of the old way. We are clothed in the righteousness of God through Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 61, righteousness is a robe. In Ephesians chapter 6, righteousness is a breastplate. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, righteousness is a crown. Are we clothed in righteousness? Or are we wearing the threadbare garments of something else instead? And finally, what heart transformation is occurring in our life? Is our heart a new or an old wineskin? The Pharisee way had been reduced to a dry and powerless religion. It had no potency. It was no longer the compelling force it once was. 
It started with admirable intentions, but now the wine was older and settled. The wineskin didn't have to flex anymore, and as a result, they were being robbed of any desire to vent what was forming and fermenting within. Jesus calls for followers who are willing to offer open, fresh, and flexible hearts. Hearts that are available to receive the bubbling, fermenting joy and life that Jesus provides. Hearts that will allow that joy and life to flourish within. And hearts that will even then not be able to contain it and will need to vent it out to those around them. So we have a new relationship dynamic. We have a new garment to wear and new wine to store within and where necessary, be able to vent it into the world around us. That's the life Matthew and his dodgy friends were being invited into. So were the Pharisees, if they were open to the invitation as well. So let's end this episode with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for this new relationship status that I now have. Help me to live a life of celebration as I consider who I am in you. Help me to wear this new garment of righteousness well and to keep my heart new and flexible and even ventable as I engage with the life and the joy that you bring. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.